0: This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. One role of a strong education system in our point of view is to establish conditions that will position young people to confidently enter the labor market with the skills and competencies and know-how that empower them to navigate it. Employers in partnership with educators have a critical role to play here because they provide youth with their first understanding of the black box that can be the world of work. That understanding can flow from a positive and equitable experience or not, both of which have implications for young people's sense of self in relation to work and their occupational identity. Today, I'm privileged to be chatting with two seasoned leaders whose work centers on building bridges between employers and youth in the creation of such experiences.
1: Hi, I'm Rakia Curvey johnson I'm the Executive Director of the Rush Education and Career Hub. Hi, my name
2: is Stephanie Pete, and I'm Director of Workforce Development at Say yes, Buffalo.
0: Rakia, Stephanie, thank you both for joining the conversation today. I'm excited to shine some bright light on the work you each lead and the whys of your leadership at REACH and at Say Yes Buffalo. So let's start with a bit about yourselves. Rakia, what is the passion that you bring to the work you do supporting youth and employers in Chicago?
1: Thank you, Kyle. So happy to join you and Stephanie here to talk about this wonderful and impactful work that we do. So one of my favorite quotes is, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. Instead of just talking about issues, I really believe it's important to act, right? And so this work and sort of commitment started for me when I lost my younger brother to gun violence, almost 17 years ago at this point. You go through grief and you start to think about what can I do when I know that so many young people are out in the world without a sense of a future or what they want to do with themselves. And so I knew that I wanted to then spend my life focusing on helping young people envision a future for themselves and working with other sort of caring, connected adults or people to help young people get on a path to a future through experiences, through supports and resources and networks and such. Being able to move into an employer like Rush University Medical Center and lead the Rush Education and Career Hub gave me a chance to combine my experience in the K-12 space And thinking about how to really marry that with the need of the employer uh, to be able to provide really enriching experiences, provide the academic press and sort of those social capital and connections and hands on learning experiences that are so needed. And so I've been on this journey working across, uh, you know, higher ed, the K-12 space, the employer space, other community partners to um, build pathways for young people and really those who have been underrepresented in so many spaces and making sure that they can have access to these middle and high skilled jobs.
0: You're radiant as you name these passions that you hold and that drive your work that in part born of a tragic moment, but that seem to have carried you through. And so thank you for that. Stephanie, what about you? What, what is the passion that brings you to this work at this intersection of young people and employers and urban economies?
2: Yeah, so it's like a full circle moment for me. So I am a product of Buffalo Public Schools. I was born and raised in the city. Um, my mom is a retired educator. She taught in the schools. So being able to, to work in this capacity for me is like more than a job or a career. Like this is, I'm doing it for my nephews. You know, this is for the kids in my community. So it's very personal to me to be able to create access to opportunities that have not existed for many people who look like me. And to be able to really do something about the racial wealth gap in our community, I'm just very passionate about it. You know, I kind of fell into this work. My background is in case management, um, child welfare. And then this opportunity became available at Say Yes to work in workforce development through our internship program. And I was just like, OK, I went with it. And this has been the craziest ride. I love it. I love being able to hold like r- really challenging conversations around what has happened in our community How that sustains the inequity we see right now and then what we all have to do moving forward if we're going to be serious about making sure we have a talented workforce and making sure that everyone has opportunity to like live and thrive here.
0: And I hear in your words too something that Rakia named in that opening about knowing is not enough. Just looking at what's happening around us, like what is our activity? What are we going to do about it? And of course, we bring together our lived experience and say, this is where I need to live right now. And employers know what they're trying to achieve in their businesses, right? I don't think that they're often seen as or even know how to become strong partners to educators or families or communities in ways that support young people forming an occupational identity or in ways that advance a conversation and practice around equity. But I think that they have a huge role to play in the larger education and career system in our country but ultimately haven't been as centered in these conversations as they should be. And so, Stephanie, to continue with where you left off, what do you see as the role of employers in creating equity in Buffalo? And how does that maybe differ in the way that they might see themselves currently?
2: So we think it's really important for employers to build community with us and with our kids. It's not enough to have job postings. It's not enough to, like, partner on getting students to apply. Um, And I say this because I've lived here my whole life. And there are some of our employer partners. I had no idea who they were and what they did. And so I started working on workforce development, even though their headquarters are in the city. So how could I ever see myself working there? So if I'm seeing that as a grown woman, how does an 18-year-old feel? So our community is very segregated. We're one of the most segregated cities in the country. Our isolation index for white people in our community is 92%. So about 92% of white people go to work, go home and never have authentic meaningful relationships with people of color. Almost 92% of our private sector workforce is white. We have the lowest workforce participation rate for Black residents for any city of our size. 60% of our kids are coming from households with a combined annual income of $20,000 or less. So like the data is sobering. It's, it's hard to say it. It's hard to listen to it. But we're inviting employers to help build community with these young people. There are organic relationships that will cause them to want to work with these employers. Right. And then our employers are seeing our kids as more as more than just potential workers. You know, we are part of the same community. And this is how coming into this space together at Say Yes for our workforce development program, that's how we're going to build it.
0: You know, in another conversation I remember having with you, you talked about the solution needing to match the problem. And I'm curious, like in your current work with employers, How do you get them to acknowledge and participate in the conversation about inequity and be part of the solution?
2: We have these conversations in a way where we're not blaming. It's just saying this is what has happened and we're all aware of it right now. What are we going to do collectively and individually? So there are things that we take ownership of as a program as far as we convene our employers and our youth apprenticeship work once a month which is challenging on our, our side and for them to commit to, you know, one more meeting <laughs> to throw on their calendar. But we're co-creating this work. So it's not just us coming to them and saying, this is what we're going to do, or just, you know, hire our kids and we walk away. It's like we're going to build this team together, us, the employers and the kids. Um, and it's really um, amazing because a lot of our employers are involved in other CS programming. So it's not just workforce development. They might be donors. They might partner with our community schools initiatives. They might be mentors in our mentoring program. And there are all these different touch points, which makes them understand the greater picture and it helps them buy in. So now it's like, of course, we want to be part of workforce development. We see these kids. They're fantastic. We're, you know, engaging with them on their journey through the K-12 through system. So now it makes sense. Like, we absolutely should be hiring them because they are part of our community. Like, we are one. So it's a huge effort across different programs. And I think the workforce development piece that we're offering now is kind of like, the end game for us. We really want employers to see um, our young people as talent, not just recipients of the feel goods and the dollars.
0: Right. This isn't just uh, isn't this nice and make me feel good. But I mean, this is an investment in the future of our community. You know, rakia you play a really unique role in this conversation as both sitting in the employer context, but also serving this intermediary function between education and em- employer. How does that Inform your perspective about the role of employers and the way that they engage in this conversation around, you know, the way Stephanie framed this, investing in young talent.
1: Yes, I am just nodding my head in a manning, if you will, that push to not have employers look at their work with young people as just the charity feel good, right? Because then that shifts how they engage and the types of resources and capacity that they bring to. Opportunities for engagement, and so thinking about the employer context, I know one of the things has been extremely helpful for us as an intermediary, of course, is having that first hand look at what's happening in the industry, what are those skills um, that are necessary uh, in the short term and long term, right, and being able to bring that back to our programming, being able to talk about that with our educational partners. And with our various team members and to begin building communications to have with students and their families. Right. Because a lot of this is also about building awareness um, and giving context to uh, that young person and their family and other caring connected adults like counselors and such. Right. They need to know what's on the horizon, what's important. And those sorts of things. So that has been extremely helpful for us in this space. Another thing actually that we do to help the employers also see our students in their possibilities is to bring employers, the, some of the professionals uh, in various departments, bring them together with the students. So that they can see them in action that provides another bridge for awareness and understanding beyond what they may see on TV or what they may even know about their own children. Just providing different experiences throughout the year in different contexts and settings can also help to bridge a gap in terms of understanding who that young person is and the kinds of possibilities and capabilities that they might bring to the workplace.
0: There's so much nuance. you know, sometimes diverging perspectives on, you know, what this work really is about. The simple act of inviting adults to come and meet young people. Very simple activity, but very potentially transformative. But also I think diverging perspectives about who owns the work of engaging and activating partnerships with employers. I feel like this is where we get stuck. We spend a lot of time, I fear, talking around each other as opposed to with one another. And this stuckness is something I'd love to explore Stephanie in 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 your experience nurturing and managing employer partnerships for instance what are some of the most common tensions that you find you need to hold in navigating or or helping to support that type of relationship building
2: Yeah so I think some of the tensions we come across really re- revolve around like professionalism like what does that actually mean and the soft skills and what does that actually mean for young people We take our role in this very seriously so much that we formed kind of like this coalition with some other partners to host employer. We don't call them trainings, but more like conversations to really talk about what it will take for our employers locally to develop practices that make engaging and retaining young people. A couple of weeks ago, we held a session on decolonizing professionalism and communication in the workplace and we prioritized voices of color in that opportunity. And it was really a chance for employers to hear, like completely unscripted. There was no filter. The people we chose to speak there were speaking from, you know, some very sometimes hard, truthful places. But we we hold these conversations with employers to create spaces to have these conversations. A lot of times they want to do the right thing. They're well-intentioned, but they don't know where to have the conversations and they don't know who to talk to about it in a way that, will develop relationships and help us develop solutions for our community versus being pinned as a racist or being pinned as out of touch. We work really hard to cultivate these spaces where trust can be built so that we can have, you know, the open conversations and be able to move from, okay, now we're having conversations. Now this is how we partner um, and we get them in the door that way.
0: You know, you talked about what I find to be sometimes a very coded word when people talk about professionalism in the workplace. Could you say a little bit more about that and how you push on or challenge what I would argue are a lot of assumptions that we use that term to mask the biases we hold, the misunderstandings we hold? How do you engage employers in a conversation about that?
2: Um, So people who look like me weren't at the table when we were talking about the standards of professionalism. So they were designed for people to exclude other people. That's the reality. and We still rock those standards. So I'll give one example. So last year we did do an interview day for our apprenticeship work. So we were saying, we know from our internship programming that sometimes students will get cherry-picked along the way. The kids who are like, you know, straight A's and student president, body president, all this, they get cherry-picked out of the application process. And our other kids who are just as talented sometimes don't even make it to interviews. So we say, you know, we're going to do one day, all the kids are going to get interviewed. And then we ran into, so what do we do about, like, clothing? You know, these are kids. Some of them don't work. I already talked about the income disparities we have in our community. So asking kids to come, quote, unquote, professionally to an interview with clothes that we consider to be professional could be a challenge and it's expensive. So how do, we, how do we navigate that? So why don't we just tell employers to not look at their clothes? Assume that that kid has come to the interview in the best that they have. Some kids don't have the money. And our district is very diverse. So we have 81% of our young people are identified as people of color. There are over 80 languages spoken. We're a huge resettlement community. So we sometimes have have kids who will come and something that is traditional to their culture, but it doesn't align with what we consider to be professional for an interview. So that's what we said. We told the employers, hey, the kids are going to come. Don't look at their clothes. Just interview them. And what happened was that employers actually came casual, too. They came in jeans and sneakers. They came in their fleeces. And they just made it a lot easier for everyone. So, I mean, we we push back pretty seriously on a lot of these norms that just don't serve people.
0: The bias I hear you holding is not that employers don't care to participate. They don't yet know how. And part of your work is about welcoming them into that conversation Rakia, what are you hearing in Stephanie's comments here? What does this look like at Rush, for instance?
1: So interestingly enough, we obviously like a lot of uh, intermediaries. And when you're doing this work, of course, we run into the same thing. And I will say that we've taken sort of a slightly different track. We try to help bridge the gap or, or what we've done is we've set up things like mock interviews for students ahead of time, right, to sort of one, get them through some of the jitters of the interview process. But two, it is an opportunity to offer notes around when you show up for an interview, you do try to show up, you know, we say business casual or what is your best. Sometimes that's your school uniform and that's okay. Um, You know, if that's what you have. And we do try to, one, make young people aware of these are sometimes the biases that may come up. I believe that there's a lot of work to do, on on the employer side and just in general about perceptions. But we also try to make sure while we're working that angle that we're upfront with students where here is where a barrier might lie. Right. People might have certain kinds of biases or perceptions about who you might be. And while that is not totally OK, we have a certain goal that we're trying to reach right now. Another angle that we take with our students is to talk about sometimes there are certain careers that require certain uniforms at this time. And hey, you may determine this is not the job or the area for you because you want to be free in how you're dressing and what you're wearing and what you're doing. And that's okay. But just know that at this moment for this career track, this is what's sort of expected. And there are other places where you can be a bit more free. And so sort of giving them that range of the types of experiences they might have, um, we have found to be really helpful um, in helping them make decisions, too, about where they want to go. It's
0: sort of a version of code switching a little yes. bit. And I, and, and what I hear you talking about, you know, you used a word there. I think that's really interesting. I would love for both of you to explore this if you'd welcome it is, is you know, How do you work that angle with employers and what does it look like to create an equity-centered approach and creating welcoming conditions for youth and young adults in the workplace?
2: So our organization is rooted in racial equity. We're very upfront about it. Um, It's embedded in everything that we do. It's communicated well throughout the community. So when our employer partners come on, they know that there's going to be a commitment to that. I mean, racial equity is just the foundation of what we talk about. We front load a lot of our training for our employer partners. We're having conversations together as a cohort, and they're able to really like examine their own practices um, before they ever even interview our students. Um, so there is the racial equity impact analysis training, um, and it's facilitated by folks from the Race Matters Institute. And then after that, we have an anti-bias hiring training that we've adapted from CareerWise USA. Um, we facilitated ourselves now in person, um, so we're having these conversations and giving them. These are some best practices for working with young people, based off the work that we've learned, based off of the work from other communities. And we invite them to also share what you know, because there are probably some things that they're doing in their organizations that are transformative that 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 other folks in the room could learn from. We embed those upfront before they ever 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 interact with our students, so that well that will lead to them. You know, having a different lens and maybe saying that policy we were using, we probably shouldn't be doing that, at least not for this group. But in general, maybe we shouldn't be using it at all. So that's what we do. And then we have these opportunities throughout the year for us to revisit equity in a different way. So that is always part of the conversation.
1: Like Stephanie mentioned, um, part of our work with different departments and our host preceptors is to provide some training for them. Uh, around working with young people, how do you welcome them in your various departments? Again, leveraging those volunteer experiences um, for us as, has been another way for us to have these multiple touch points throughout the year. Before you get to the interview, before you get to a young person on um, in their department, as a way for to engage and and begin to understand the possibilities. But it is definitely difficult. How do we consistently implement these practices? and revisit things that are commonplace for us, right? If we grow up or we had the notion that, oh, internships are, you know, unpaid and, oh, I just bring in my colleague's child, you know, to do an internship and that qualifies as me, you know, sort of serving young people. It's like, no, let's talk about the fact that you're going to miss a lot of students who deserve this opportunity because they can't afford to have an unpaid internship. We have to provide paid, uh, experiences for them to get these, um, you know, wonderful hands-on sort of experiences that they need in some cases to advance to different levels of education and careers. How do we think about our zero tolerance absence policies that some departments have in place for, you know, for internships and apprenticeships where you have students who have, in some cases, demands from their families or other jobs and obligations. And we can't just do zero tolerance, (laughs) you know, and especially not in this in this age and for, you know, many of our black and Latino youth that we're serving. So it's been a process and just an ongoing one to work consistently with our partners uh, in this work to be a bit more centered around equity. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, along in the education space, I've I've observed a lot of adults imposing tolerance metrics on young people that they would never tolerate to be imposed on themselves in their own work contexts. And naming and calling those out feels really critical. And But that's hard work and really struck by the importance of trust in in all of this, right? We can't leave it up to chance. Do you find that that's true in your practice and working with employers? How do you create those spaces where they can enter a conversation with you As this intermediary partner to help them reshape their practices from a place that might require them to have hard conversations with themselves or with their colleagues.
2: We meet with our employers monthly once they sign on. And doing that, I've seen over the year, like there's a lot of trust that has been built and they'll ask questions like, hey, I've been really struggling with this. Like, how is it with other organizations? Like, what could we be doing better? Like, is there a different approach? And we have some consultancy as a group in those meetings. And then also, we have a success coach who works intimately with our apprentices and the employers and our higher ed partners throughout the entire journey. She's their go to. They're reaching out to her and she's helping to create, like, you know, performance improvement plans or talk about, well, this is what we've seen with other employers. This might work for you. They trust us enough to consult with us when they're having an issue. They're really committed to, what this is trying to achieve community-wide. So it's more than just a couple of kids that you hired. It's, you're a part of this grand initiative to really change the trajectory of the kids in our community. So then they, they do trust us to come in and say, okay, we're going to figure out a plan together and, you know, continue meeting on this until find something that works for everyone. And like, I'm really appreciative of that because it's really easy to just say, oh, well, it didn't work, you know, we're out. <laughs> but they don't do that.
0: I love the way you frame that around the, the culture of consultancy. You know, Ricky I don't know, do you have any similar practice and maybe you don't call it that, but do you have any any other ways that you consistently bring folks from the employer sector together to talk about this work?
1: Primarily, we do focus sort of regular focus groups across um, different employers and partners. And then another way that we get feedback or sort of consult is um, as a part of this broader collaborative. So we're part of the Chicagoland Healthcare Workforce Collaborative and another one um, with through Westside United. But basically through those collaboratives, we're able to have sort of these broader discussions beyond rush, right, to think about what are some of the common challenges and think about how we can address them shared learnings and promises, practices that we've been able to see through each of our respective organizations. And then uh, similar to Stephanie, we have several um, point people that regularly engage and sort of have that touch point with especially some of our departments that we work with. As Stephanie mentioned, mentioned, trust is so, so important, right? They have to trust that they can share, right, and be upfront and frank about what it is that they're wrestling with, even if it's difficult, and while everything may not be resolved immediately, that there is the space for working through the issue, even if it doesn't feel, you know, good all the time. But having that trust has been helpful for us.
0: Rakia, maybe just building off of where you were, when you think about what's next for for this field and our work, what's the next horizon of that that we really need to keep a clear focus on? That if we don't get right we actually stand to lose a great deal
1: one of the the top things is that we have to have this radical shift i think in sort of the training and and sort of that career pathway development um shifting and thinking about skills based hiring you know moving beyond just thinking through the you know terminal degree phase the bachelors for everything being really clear about what is really required for some of these jobs <laughs> and having employers think about how they're going to work with other training providers and that's a shift i will say this just thinking about the healthcare sector because there is such a shortage in staff it also requires that radical shift because you have to have people to precept. You have to have somebody who is watching, observing, the clinical observer of that learner, you know, in that space, that's a part of the modeling and you need that in a lot of ways. But if you don't have the people to precept, <laughs> then what happens, right? And so it's just a vicious sort of a cycle that we have to really think creatively about how to bring people in. And then the other piece that I would want to say is as an intermediary and for other intermediaries in this space, that we and, and consequently other uh, folks need to be thoughtful, too, about the context of the employer. The market is um, very challenging right now. Companies are dealing with uh, lots of shifts and changes and, you know, loss of staff and really understanding what is happening in the marketplace. And so for intermediary to be thinking also in a long term fashion, not just what is the short term need for a specific job? But thinking long term too, what are some of the long term trends in that uh, industry so that you can then bring that back to inform your strategic planning. Right. Where you hope to take uh, help to take young people, because then that way you can have a more informed conversation with the employer partner about how to best help meet their needs as well as the needs of your students. And so my big thing.
2: Um, That we are preaching with employers is really you have to move past DEI and talk about decolonization and what that looks like in your organization. You know, I always say like millennials started the self-care and work-life balance and all of that. Um, And then like Gen Z came and like threw some bricks through the window and we're like, yeah, we are not going to tolerate the things that other generations have. And they truly want to be seen, valued. They want their identities affirmed. They want to feel like they're complete selves in the workplace. And employers have to understand that. And they have to understand that the things that they have been doing, even if you are making progress, even if maybe you're being praised for your efforts, it's always how do we dig deeper and how do we actually uh, push this needle forward so that young people want to come here, they can see themselves being here. And I also think it's really important to start younger Employers should be trying to build community with young people. And it's not just you get them at the end of whatever their educational journey is when they're ready to jump into the workforce, especially when you're trying to talk about homegrown talent. You know, we have an issue here where, you know, we have this workforce that hasn't really been tapped the way they could be. People who who live here and have their families here and have commitment to this area, that should be our number one focus. And they want to know that they are part of a community and not just being hired for one specific role.
0: There's multiple levels of even the way we define home, right? Like what's the internal work of our in, inside of ourselves that needs doing? What's the work inside of our organizations that needs doing? And what's the attention we can put on the place we call home as a community? And how do we bring attention to the needs and voices who live there, who work there, and the people who employ there? Like that is that is what makes up an economy and a community. Um Rakia Stephanie, thank you so much for coming together today to have this conversation about your practice. Your insights are invaluable to this field and frankly, to our ability to build one. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you here and selfishly, um, any opportunity to talk with y'all is one I'm going to take.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This is great.
0: Two things really stuck out to me in our conversation today. One is that employers are hungry to engage in welcome spaces where they can ask questions and learn without judgment, and intermediary organizations like Reach and Say Yes Buffalo, they're well-equipped to provide that space. The other thing that stood out to me was how our use of language, positioning youth on one side and employers on another, can really get in our way. At its best, this work is about inviting community conversation about norms and practices that don't serve us, and proactively experimenting and making way for those that do. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to resources and materials referenced by Rukia and Stephanie that they use in their practice. We hope they're helpful in your own work and thinking. And in our next episode, we will speak with an employer and a district leader who leaned into new models and ways of working to implement a strategy for youth apprenticeship and the change process they went through in their organizations to make that happen. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF. Signing off until next time.